we all want a business like Netflix or Amazon Prime. Businesses where once a customer engages with them, it becomes automatic and a part of their lifestyle from then on. But how do you build that forever transaction? I'm Robbie Kelman-Baxter, and I have been studying subscription and membership models for nearly 20 years. In this podcast, my guests and I share the secrets and strategies of the membership economy. Join us for Subscription Stories, True Tales from the Trenches. Most subscription entrepreneurs initially are attracted to the model for its predictable recurring revenue. But there are other benefits to having an ongoing relationship with members. Today's guest, Ali Harper, works at the intersection of subscription e-commerce and social impact. Her subscription business is an intentional tactic to advance change in the picture book industry and to achieve that impact. Ali is building a scalable enterprise that serves the currently underestimated audience for diverse children's books. Ali is the founder and owner of Our Shelves, a diverse children's book subscription service and advocacy effort. Our Shelves has a dual mission to connect high quality curated diverse children's books to the families, teachers, and librarians seeking them, and to leverage the collective consumer power to advocate for the many more diverse books still needed. Allie, who was trained as a lawyer and community organizer, launched Our Shelves from her kitchen table in the home she shares with her wife, Jen, and their two children. I featured her launch story in my recent book, The Forever Transaction, and I invited her to the podcast to share the way she's using her subscription business to persuade publishers to include more diverse families in the everyday stories they tell in their children's books. In this conversation, we talk about what it takes to bootstrap a subscription commerce business, what metrics are most important when profitability isn't the highest priority, and how her training in law and advocacy has helped her build a vibrant community of parents, librarians, and schools around her subscription offering. Welcome to the show, Allie. Thank you so much for having me, Robbie. What prompted you to launch Our Shelves? The beginning of Our Shelves really goes back to the beginning of me and my wife, Jen, beginning as parents, which I will say right around the birth of our oldest child, Anna, which, by the way, was in a Subaru Outback car because we didn't quite make it to the hospital. Oh, my gosh. Um, but that's, that's a whole other story. It very much fits her personality. But books have always been really important to me and Jen. We were married in a library. And so, of course, when we were preparing for our first child, we started looking for books for her. And I guess I would say we were surprised. Maybe we shouldn't have been surprised, but we were surprised at how hard it was to find high quality, age appropriate kids books that affirmed our two mom family type, because of course we knew it was important for her to see her family affirmed in the books she enjoys. And also, it was also hard to find books featuring many other kinds of kids and families. It was also important to us to have books that cultivated our values of inclusion, equity, and social justice. So we started asking around, you know, we had friends across the country, many of whom were starting to have kids, and we found that this was a common problem. People were looking for these books and having a hard time finding them. Wow. A lot of people have those kinds of challenges, and then they kind of backburner it because 
they're new parents because they have other things going on. What was it that made you say, gee, I think I'm going to take this one on and make it my work for the next, I don't know how many years you're planning to do that, but for the next period of time, even as a new parent, what was it that made you say, this is a battle worth fighting for? Initially, that's exactly right. We were new parents. (laughs) We moved and I really thought this problem would take care of itself. I was aware there was a tremendous audience for these books. So I continued with my life as it had been and now with a new child and, and continuing that line of work. And it was actually when Anna started to read chapter books that I, a piece of me was devastated. I couldn't believe my child had just aged out, if it's possible to age out, because it's really not possible to age out of picture books. But she was starting to read chapter books and another child missed the chance like so many other children and families, to see herself adequately represented in kids' books. So it wasn't actually until that point. So how old was she when she was reading her um, chapter books, your precocious Anna? Probably five or six. I mean, we had been asking for those first five years. We had been asking everybody, librarians, booksellers, teachers, every friend. I remember visiting San Francisco and going to the gayest neighborhoods and the most (laughs) independent bookstores and saying, what do you have? But it was, it was one of those San Francisco trips where I visited some of those bookstores and they were showing still some of the older books and didn't know about some of the newer books that now after me, just as a parent consumer looking for these books and being really scrappy and committed, that they didn't even know about some of these books that I was starting to find. So I was starting to build some confidence that this isn't just me. You know, sometimes as new parents, you just think, oh, I just feel guilty about everything and you know, this must be me. Um, I just can't find these books. But I actually, I started to gain the confidence that this was not just me. This was a systemic structural problem that needed to be addressed. And, and to your question of why was it something worth pursuing is, and we'll talk more about this later, is there's tremendous opportunity because there's such an incredible market audience that's underestimated and, and untapped. So I think it was that piece that I said, this is, we need to connect some dots here. This is actually a solvable problem. And I will also say that at that point, we were now having our second child. So we actually launched ourselves right when having our second child, which again is a different story. But um, (laughs) so I think it was having the second child that I was saying, I'm not going to sit this one out. That makes great sense. So you decided not to sit it out. You're a community advocate and organizer. You're a lawyer. What made you decide to do a subscription business? That seems like not the most obvious tactic to achieve the goals that you just described. So we realized this initially as a personal challenge. And then we realized that this personal challenge was faced by many people. So we had kind of an everyday problem that a lot of people were facing. So when I started to pay more attention to it, I think my community organizer lens, I'm really an organizer with a lens towards systems change and structural change. So I started to try to understand what was going on in the picture book industry. And I came away with two observations of two systemic problems that informed the choice to set up our shelves the way we set it up. So the two problems, the first problem are there are not enough high quality, diverse children's books, period. That's the first problem. And the second problem is that actually there are more books than I thought there were, but they are too often too hard to find. And our shelves and our dual mission is a direct response to those two problems. So the first part of our mission is in direct response to these books can be too hard to find. So the first part of the mission is we've assembled an incredible curation team that selects and reviews these books. And then we deliver, we make it easier to find, we connect these books to the busy families, teachers, and librarians through our subscription service. 
So that's the first part of the mission, addressing one of those problems. And then the second problem, our second part of the mission addresses the second problem being there are not enough books, period. And the second part of the mission is we are advocating for the many more diverse books still needed. And we can talk about how we do that. But those two together led to the dual mission. And I'll I'll also share that those two problems are interconnected. I want to talk a little bit about the subscription itself. Can you give us a sense of kind of order of magnitude of where you are in terms of your subscription operations? How many books, where you're getting the books from, how many shipments you're making, how many subscribers, anything that you can share with the audience to just give them a sense of how you're running the subscription part of your initiative of your organization. So we started, as you mentioned, you know, in our home, <laughs> right around the birth of my second child. What we was had that like? <laughs> that was, I honestly don't even remember it, to be, to be honest. We launched, and I assumed because it would have been my wife's first child, and I was hopeful that first children, they always come, you know, they should come later, right? But he didn't. He came early because she was working an overnight shift. She's in the healthcare profession. And so he came early. And so he ended up coming during our first round of shipments. And we, that first shipment, we had thought this was just going to be some friends and family just to get the boxes out the door to figure out, you know, where do we order boxes? How do we work with publishers? Very basic. Get a few boxes out the door and then figure this out. And we put up a blog post and quickly got 300, over 300 orders. Um, which was extremely overwhelming given the circumstances that we knew very little about what we were doing and that we had a new baby being born, but we had some great help. And who helped you? My babysitter (laughs) and her (laughs) wife. (laughs) I have many pictures of all of us packing, but like alternating between holding a new baby, (laughs) playing with the older child and packing books. So that was, it was a very special, challenging time that again, I don't really remember. (laughs) <laughs> um, I don't think I slept very much during that time. My wife certainly was not sleeping during that time because she had just birthed the child. But it was a great, it was a great problem to have. And um, we were very excited. The other interesting thing about our launch was that of the subscribers, 76% of the subscribers signed up to prepay for a year. And that was a powerful signal to me that people experienced a high pain point with this problem because we were unproven. You know, I had a blog post but we had never delivered a box. So to prepay for a year of something that has never existed, I think, you know, you do that when you feel like you really need it and you don't feel like you have some other options. So that that was a very interesting moment. And it's us. not an insignificant cost. Can you share what a year of prepay would cost? Yeah. So we offer boxes curated by age. So our sunshine boxes, which are baby book boxes for ages zero to two, a year of three book boxes, and we ship quarterly. So you get four boxes is $131.88. And then for rainbow and treehouse books, a rainbow are for ages two to five-year-olds and treehouse boxes are for ages five to eight. And those are both picture books. So they have the same cost and those are $179.88 for the year. So yeah, I mean that, I think that was an interesting moment of people are really looking for this, just like my family was. I mean, it came from, you know, just a real personal pain point for families. And I will point out, the reason I asked about the cost is that a lot of people, especially in what I would call curated commerce box subscription area, they have trouble keeping people for three months, right? Because there's sort of an overwhelm, like, oh, I have too many ties now, or I have too many you know, snacks now, or too many lipsticks. I'm overwhelmed. I That's all I needed. I'm tired of it. And by the way, I can buy it myself at the 
the store. And it's fascinating to me that you found this niche, this space where there was so much pain and pent up demand that people were willing to commit to a year with an unproven model, with an unproven founder. Very few subscription businesses get that kind of early connection with their audience. And I think it's because your forever promise was so compelling. Yeah. And I also think it's interesting too, because I know in your book, you speak about kind of who are your best customers. And what's interesting about who those early, we call them our founding members, who those founding members were and who our members continue to be is we really have two batches of best customers. So one is clearly the people like my family, who their kids and their families are traditionally underrepresented in kids' books. They have experienced the struggle of trying to find these books, laying there at bedtime, pulling out another book that doesn't show their family and how that feels and their worry about how that impacts their child. So that is clearly one audience that experiences a high pain point. And also, we have many members who do not have a child or they are not traditionally underrepresented. And they really understand and are committed to having books that affirm their values of inclusion, equity, and social justice. So that's also been very powerful is we're not just talking about folks who are traditionally underrepresented. More than half the babies in the United States are now babies of color. And there's nine and a half LGBTQ millennials looking to grow their families. And there's also 12 million allied millennial moms who support diverse families. So we're seeing our best customer audiences, you know, we're really seeing both of those audiences. What are the metrics that you use to both make sure that the subscription business is healthy and that you're optimizing it? And also to tie it back, you know, I don't know if this is double bottom line investing or triple bottom line, but you have multiple objectives here, one of which is to have a successful subscription book business, but another bigger one, which is to drive change in the world. So I'm curious, what are the metrics that you look at to tell yourself if you're on the right track and where more attention is needed? The two objectives you mentioned are integrally related. I am very committed to having an excellent subscription e-commerce business and learning from people like you and others, how to run and scale an excellent subscription e-commerce business, because that is the way we will scale and have the impact we need to have with publishers. So the two are very much related. So yes, we are trying, ultimately, this is a tactic to change the picture book industry. And also, we need to be very strong in terms of being a sustainable, well-run business enterprise. So clearly, what we're trying to do is the number of members and the number of books we buy matters the most. So on the acquisition front, we are Still, so we're spending the next three to six months really focusing on operations. So we have not hit a green light go button on a significant investment in marketing thus far. So we, to give a sense, so we have members in all 50 states. Last year, we tripled the size of our membership base. So we are growing, but that growth so far has not been through uh, marketing, financial investment. It has been through the loyalty of our members. So our cost of acquiring customers has been very, very low, but that will certainly go up. So that will be something that we will be tracking when we hit the green light button even more so. But right now we do track it, but it's very low. The growth has been organic, but we are paying attention to on the acquisition side, you know, new members in terms of where they're coming from. And then we look daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, and annually at, you know, acquisitions for sure. I think where we've spent the most of our attention is on retention. Our members are extremely loyal. We have extremely high retention rates, extremely low churn rates. And and so that's 
we every, you know, after shipments, we send a feedback survey where we ask a variety of questions, including a net promoter score question. So that's a place that we pay close attention. So on the retention front and, and then on, on the engagement front, that's a piece where, so we can't get a piece of data that says like how many times do they read a book every night, <laughs> but we can get proxies and indicators. So people will send, you know, like yesterday, somebody, a member sent me an email and said, my, you know, my child has memorized these books because we read them every night. So that's, you know, we can't get it like going on NewYorkTimes.com and we don't have the ability to see someone clicked on NewYorkTimes.com 10 times today and read 14 different articles. So we have to do a little bit of relying on feedback surveys and other proxies. You know, how many times do they engage with social media posts when we ask people to fill out surveys or the upcoming more advocacy that we're doing, you know, to what extent do they participate in that? So that's going to be what we have and what we will measure on the engagement front. So we're building out how to do this. And I will say one of the best things that's happened to us is recently we brought on somebody who has a background in analytics and engineering and, and operations. And so he's been able to really play with and manipulate the data we have to just really look at it from a lot of different angles, particularly like breaking it down into cohort analyses and things like that, that before that I couldn't do. And now we can do that. So that those are now we're also starting to look at. What kind of cohorts? So we're trying to look at what we've looked at so far is comparing, just trying to see the trends we can see between when people signed up. So, you know, what have been the patterns of our founding members versus people who have signed up at different moments that have been interesting for one reason or another. Maybe it's a holiday or we looked at after George Floyd's murder when people were really looking for diverse kids books. We received a lot of new members looking for our books. And so, you know, looking at those members and we've also compared, you know, across products, how different products, you know, people who prepay versus people who pay quarterly, what's their customer lifetime value? How long do they stay with us? So those are, those are the things we're starting to look at. So important. It's, it's funny. I'm interviewing you obviously today and the person I most recently interviewed before you, Matt Fiedler, who started Vinyl Me Please, which is a curated subscription to records. And something, I mean, lots of really interesting analogies that I'm thinking about. We talked a lot about his scaling process and building in operations and outsourcing shipments and fulfillment, which, you know, I have to introduce you to him because I think you guys will have a great conversation. But one of the things that he talked about was that when he reached a certain scale, he couldn't get the inventory a, it was hard to get the inventory from the publishers because the quantities were too great. And a lot of times these were older titles, but also he was able to create his own content. So he might take music from a particular artist and create new cover art or commission something a little bit different because he had gotten to know his subscribers so well. And I can't help but think about this in the context of what you're doing at what point where you might either hit a, hit a number where you're like, ah, they cannot fulfill these orders, or even more powerfully, we can actually pick an author and a book and bring it to the publisher and say, we're going to pre-buy the books. Where are you on kind of that journey? I really would love to talk to that person because all of those questions are so live for us, externalized, internalized fulfillment. But this question of content development, so just to give an example, right now, recently we've been curating our baby board book boxes for upcoming shipments. And I have had such a hard time finding board books with LGBTQ kids and families. And it has forced the question earlier than I might have wished of, we need more and better content. So 
in that conversation, we have been brainstorming and speaking with other advocates about what, how can we partner with publishers on content development and have just begun those conversations. So I think those are very much live conversations for us. And I think that partnering with publishers, there's a lot of potential there. On the operational front, the great thing about Kids Book is we can work with publishers to pre-order books, request our own print runs. And so that is exciting. Do you need to be a certain size to do that? It depends on the publisher. We have run into problems where we have requested inventory and there hasn't been enough and we've had to shift books to be used. So we're, I feel like we're at the point now where we are, some of our book choices for a particular box end up being dictated by that logistical challenge, particularly with the pandemic, because publishers will think they're getting a book in and then it's three weeks late because it's coming from China. So I think there's a pandemic piece to that, but there is also, it is impacting our operations to the extent that it doesn't mean we won't get the book in, but we have to wait for a reprint to arrive. So maybe we have to switch it to a different box. And on the print run size, in terms of size, it really depends on the publisher. Some smaller publishers, it's a thousand, a few thousand of a, a certain type of book, and sometimes it's 5,000 of a certain type of book, depending on the, the book and the publisher. You talked about partnerships. I know one of the partnerships that you've recently embarked on is with the Maine Technology Institute, and you received a grant from them. Did you consider taking outside investment as a means of accelerating growth? And how do you think about who you want to partner with and kind of make the trade-offs of accelerating growth versus you know, staying true to the mission as you move forward? So the Maine Technology Institute, MTI, we love them. They have given us two grants. They gave us an initial grant to just test the concept. With that small grant, we were able to do all of those 400 to 500 interviews, surveys, and then to launch our MVP website, which then we validated the concept. And then we went back to them and said, oh my goodness, we know there's a demand. We know there's a pain point here. And now we really need to improve our operations in terms of efficiency and effectiveness. So then we went back to them and they've given us a second round of money for that. They really stand for innovation, iteration, thinking outside the box. We've been incredibly grateful for their support. And they're really building infrastructure in Maine for innovation and in creating jobs. So to the extent folks have state entities like that, I think they are great partners. In terms of your question of other partners, I think we were fortunate both to have the MTI access to the MTI grant funding and also because, as I mentioned, of that initial cohort, 76% of the subscribers prepaid for their subscription, we actually had a fair amount of money up front so that we've been able to have enough money in the bank to run our business. Having said that, as I mentioned, we are spending right now, we are cleaning up operations. We've been growing kind of faster than you know, in some ways our operations can handle. So we're trying to focus on the operations for the next three to six months. And so it begs your question of when we're ready, really hit the go button with a significant investment. What kinds of partners will we look for? How will we get the resources we need for that growth? And that is just a really live conversation right now. It's funny, back to this interview with Matt Fiedler from Vinyl Me Please. One of the things he said that really stuck with me was every time you double in size, everything breaks. Just as a, as a rule of thumb. <laughs> I can relate to that. <laughs> 
So you're trained as a lawyer. And, you know, I never thought of lawyers as being entrepreneurial, certainly when I was thinking about grad school. But you're not the first lawyer entrepreneur that I've even had on this show. Joanna Strober, who's the founder of Kerbo by Weight Watchers, which is a children's weight loss program available through digital means, was my first subscription stories guest. And she also went to law school. So I have to ask, like, how did your legal training and your background in community organizing impact the way you run your business, the way you run the subscription? As an attorney, I think when I went to law school, I was focused on studying how one changes systems through, you know, kind of at the intersection of organizing and lawyering strategy. And so I think that just general analysis of when I see a problem and then I look at the system and try to understand it and then figure out, okay, where's the breakdown? Where are the disconnects? And is there a way that I can have an impact with my skill set to advance change? I think that lens was helpful from law school. I think in law school, you know, we also studied power dynamics. And so I think having a lens of just how power works in big systems also informed my analysis of this problem and how we might solve the problem. In terms of the nuts and bolts of running the business, I mean, at heart, I'm really a community organizer. And what's really interesting about community organizing is when I was reading your second book, The Forever Transaction, and you talk about member-centric thinking, I mean, community organizing, so many of the themes, it's, we use different language often, but so many of the themes are there. So, I mean, community organizing is all about building authentic relationships with an eye towards long-term building of a collective that is working together to achieve a mission. And, and I think as part of community organizing, we're extremely strategic about who we're targeting and how we bring those people into our community and also how we community organizing, you're always thinking about, you know, how you empower the people in your community and listen to them and value their expertise. And it's been so interesting as a subscription e-commerce startup because so our members have expertise. We've already spoken a little bit about their expertise in just knowing what they're looking for in kids' books, who's missing, which characters, which storylines. But even from starting a business, I mean, it was our members. It is still our members who tell us when something on the website isn't working, right? I mean, so it's, it's an incredible, every time somebody writes with a little thing, like, I'm just so grateful because it's something we missed. So I think that that listening and valuing that expertise is really valuable. And the other the other piece that resonates about what you've written in community organizing is I like to think of organizing as you're moving people along a continuum of taking action. So if somebody first interacts with you by liking a post on Facebook or, you know, this week we've been talking a lot about NASA and space and they they see that we put out a book called Rocket Says Look Up about a little black girl who loves meteor showers and wants to be an astronaut. They share that book and buy that book for their kids. So they take some actions and then they maybe subscribe to our shelves and receive our books. And then maybe they suggest to their teachers that they might want to read these books and bring these books into their classroom. So they're continually, you're continually offering encouragement and opportunity for strategically chosen actions that they take that are strategically chosen to build connection and investment in your mission. I think it's also exciting when our members feel so invested in the mission that they become leaders and they become spokespeople for diverse kids books. So that could look like they're sharing 
you know, it's Halloween time and there's a great book, Harriet Gets Carried Away, about a little girl who looks for all kinds of costumes and she's in a multiracial two-dad family. So, you know, maybe they're sharing books with teachers and librarians or maybe they are sharing that with their networks of, did you know that in their Facebook parent group, did you know that babies can see race in the first six months of life? Did you know that by the age of two, kids have internalized identity-based bias? And so these early years, all of this um, bias formation can actually happen much earlier than we think. So whether it's education, whether it's sharing books, you know, there's so many different ways that we've seen our members just grab onto the information and the books and extend their reach, which all helps to fulfill our mission of more people realizing the importance of diverse kids books and having them in their homes, classrooms and libraries. What's so important, I think, about what you said for people listening, two things. One of them is the idea of super users, which is something that that I think about a lot, which is the people that go beyond just paying you for the great value that your subscription provides, which is, which is wonderful. We're very excited when we find subscribers who get great value from what we're providing. But a super user is someone who goes beyond that and contributes their own time and resources to the benefit of the organization. So I'm investing in the organization because I believe in what they're doing so much because it brings me so much value. And that's when people, when they make referrals, when they go deeper and take deeper action, when they give you feedback, like you said, when they say, hey, I see an error on your website, I hope you fix it because that'll help other people. So I think that's really important, how how thoughtful you've been about super users, which I think really speaks to your community organizer training. And for those of you who are trying to do some hiring right now, which I know a lot of subscription businesses are, maybe that's an interesting place to look is with people in this kind of background, especially if you have a noble purpose or mission driving your business. And the other thing that you said that I think is super important is understanding your member journey, understanding what you want, what kind of being able to see around the corners and to know, oh, you know, if they get these books, the next thing they're probably going to want to do, and they're going to think they came up with this idea is tell their librarian or tell their school teacher. So how can we anticipate that and make it easy for them to go on that journey? And we're kind of aligned together on the journey and we're helping them every step of the way to achieve that forever promise, which is to help, you know, your double mission of there's more books and more people have access to those books. So step one is getting these people those books, but then there's step two, step three, and step four. And I love how you described how you're doing that with our shelves. We're getting to the end of our time and it's gone by so fast. So fun to talk to you and so interesting. I want to do a speed round if you're up for it. So just say what pops into your mind, quick answers. Advice for community advocates who are considering incorporating a for-profit initiative into their mission. I think just Following the same principles, even though it's a different model, following the same principles of building relationships and empowering the people in your community to achieve the mission that you jointly are out to achieve. Advice for non-business people more generally who want to bootstrap a business, a subscription business. I think find a network of people who have done this before, because I think there is a lot to learn and it's really helpful to have people. I've been really grateful for people like you and other people who have been willing to share so much about just from terminology to nuts and bolts. The last book you read aloud to your kids. Um, Oh gosh, you read a million books every day. Let's see. Rosa Loves Cars. Rosa Loves Cars. What you're reading right now. (laughs) I was going to say The Forever Transaction because we literally were just reading it in a meeting the other day. Let's see. I just finished Braiding Sweetgrass. Braiding Sweetgrass. Your first subscription. National Geographic. 
Oh, I love that. Geographic Society. Remember the Geographic Society, right? <laughs> actually, my kids still get, that's actually still probably our favorite subscription is my kids now get it. And it's so, you know, it's broken down for different ages for different kids. And it's so fun. It's really good. Oh, well, that answers my second, my next question, which was, what is your favorite subscription? So for the family as well. And then a time you felt like a member like you belonged. We had a parent school evening earlier this year where the teacher introduced herself and shared her pronouns. And it was just a signal that, you know, that's something that people do, I think, when they're trying to be proactively inclusive. And she did that. And it was just a signal to me that she was trying intentionally to make an inclusive community. So I felt like I belonged. Thank you so much for all of the wisdom and the stories and the insights uh, that you shared with us today. It was a real pleasure. Thank you so much, Robbie. And we are such fans of yours. And thank you again for sharing, as I said, this book, The Forever Transaction. It's, you know, highlighted, underlined. I mean, this is a book that for those of us who are just starting out, it's it's just been so helpful in so many fronts. So thank you for all that you do. That was Allie Harper, CEO of Our Shelves. For more about Our Shelves, go to ourshelves.com. And for more about subscription stories, as well as a transcript of my conversation with Allie, go to RobbieKilmanBaxter.com slash podcast. Also, if you like what you heard, please take a moment to review and give us a star rating. And make sure to mention the Allie interview if you especially enjoyed it. Reviews matter so much in helping others to find us. Thank you for your support. And thank you for listening to subscription stories.